everybody. Welcome to episode 34 of Elo Punters. Beep, 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 foghorns. My name is Adarag Das, and I'm here with Bob Wong and Daniel Goshal. Today, we have a great episode. The turnaround time on this is going to be hot because we've got a big weekend, big, big, big weekend coming up here. Uh, the Legacy Pit is hosting, I think it's a 20K, right, Bob? That is correct. Yeah. And uh, the last time they ran an event like this, it was super successful. Uh, honestly, you know, Travis just sort of driving home the return to paper legacy magic. And it's it's great. It's it's super great. I'm going to be there. Bob's going to be there. Daniel's going to be there in spirit. How are you guys doing? Yeah, I'm excited for the Legacy Pit Open. It's always good to play, you know, high-powered legacy it, with coverage. It's been a... It's been a minute. Like I guess the last one was the last Legacy Pit Open, or yeah, maybe the Channel Fireball had a little bit of coverage, but um, I feel like I don't know if that was all Legacy, right? Like this is like one of the like all Legacy big coverage events. Yeah, like by the people for the people of the people, Eagle, uh, that kind of thing, right? And honestly, like I, I mean, so you know, like we have the usual rundown, but before we even do that, I just want to say, like, running events at this scale, at this size, is kind of a nightmare, right? Like, I've had experience on various degrees. Like, first, running a thirty-two person online like tournament is that alone made me super stressed out. Like on the day of, minutes before, but then on top of that, like having traveled to SCG cons and things like that, you just get a, a taste for how hard it really is to run events. So major shout outs to Travis for actually just making this happen because it's, it is not easy. Uh, and on that note, um, let's, let's go into uh, the meat and potatoes of, well, you know, just the regular podcast. So uh, first off, I want to give a major shout out to our editor at Force of Phil, who takes this stuff and makes it makes us sound good. You know what I mean? Phil's got a taste for he's got an ear for quality. If you haven't already checked him out on SoundCloud at the bare minimum, you should check it out. Uh, check him out at Force of Phil. And uh, yeah, what you guys been up to up otherwise uh, walking into this weekend? Yeah, we'll definitely touch on a few things. We'll preview the Legacy Pit. Um, we will talk about recent results which there was a showcase challenge this weekend and I managed to top eight with eight casts. So that was awesome. Um, so yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to that. But one thing, never forget, never forget, we also have some new patrons. So definitely thank you to Ankit and Fritz for subscribing and help support the podcast. We definitely appreciate that. Do you guys have any other kind of, I guess, caster updates before we dive into that? Honestly, my, my next few weeks are so packed with action. Like this week, I'm going to the pit. Next week, I'm going to TwitchCon. End of month, I'm going to Vegas for Magic 30. Then there's the event in Utah. And then there's finally wrapping everything up, DreamHack Atlanta. So there's just like... Bro, how are you not burned out just like listing that? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, we'll see how this weekend goes. I think I think honestly going in, because it's, it's, it's really most of the time just condensed to a certain weekend. Uh, but but the only one that is a little bit nerve wracking is like uh, the very final one, which is DreamHack Atlanta. We'll see what happens for that. Uh, can't say too much about it just yet, but uh, I am I am looking forward to all of the events. We'll see we'll see what happens. TwitchCon is also maybe not so much of a magic thing, but more of like a networking thing. So I don't even know if I'll be able to stream. But that is also the weekend where I think in SCGCon there's like an event in Philly. Wait, do they even have any magic at TwitchCon? They have like a tabletop segment, but there's not going to be like a 1K or anything like that. I think uh, if I went to TwitchCon, the goal would be to find like just like popular streamers and play paper magic with you know whoever is there also like i think the more important part is like i didn't realize this but like twitchcon like people go they bring business cards they're like super serious about this stuff and they just like network all weekend long with like other content creators and like execs at twitch and stuff like that the last time i went there i i just went to like you sort of like hang out with people but this time it's just like maybe i should make some business cards 
Oh my God, I want to make business cards. <laughs> Good luck with that. Um, shouldn't be that hard to do. What about you, Daniel? Have your Hydroblast stonks gone up since we last spoke? Not that much. It's not one of my craziest bets, but... Uh... Yo, I'll let you in on um, a crazy bet. At least two of the cast are in on um, myself and Honor. I'm not sure if Daniel got in on this, but... Founding the third path, um, Anurag and I each bought like 100 copies on Moto, and they're literally 0.3 cents. So the more annoying thing about them is that GoatBots only lets you buy four at a time. So we had to trade with GoatBots, you know, over like an hour. It takes like that long to get all the cards, but it's pretty much risk-free. Like we probably spent like one or two tickets or I guess even less than that. Um, and we have a hundred copies of a card that is now starting to see play in Pioneer. There is a deck that 5-0'd with See the Truth and Founding the Third Path. I think it's potentially got some viability and legacy as well. So yeah, you heard it here first. We are in on FTTP. FTTP. That's 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 so funny. That sounds like a oh goodness yes. FTTP coin win. Uh, actually, it it just seems like the kind of card. I mean, have you read this card? Right. It's like almost a Snapcaster equivalent, except it can do a couple other things. Point zero zero three cents for this card is egregious. It is egregious for a playable blue card that can buy back something like Ancestral Recall. You know, like like you know what I'm saying. Like anything that is format playable should not be point zero zero three cents. It isn't uncommon, so maybe it's weird at that low of a price like it is just free to buy well okay it is to be fair it is 0.3 cents it is 0.003 dollars but still okay sure yeah yeah whatever you get what i'm saying yeah yeah anyways all right i don't really stonks too hard but i looked at this card and i was like the disrespect is real all right fine the other card that i i like okay here i i don't really talk about finance too much because it's kind of boring and i know it's like a touchy subject the only other cards that i've ever gambled on were a treasure cruise B, Veil of Summer, and then C, actually, I didn't even really gamble on it because I was lazy, but Minskin Boo was the most recent one, and the only one that I've ever been successful on is Veil of Summer because I forgot to sell my treasure cruises before they got banned. So I'm not really a, like, I'm not a financial advisor by any capacity. <laughs> I'm, in fact, quite the opposite, uh, but that's that's my... my uh, well, I don't know if it's advice because I, I, it's serious. I don't know how to frame it because if you wanted to spend one dollars, you'd have to spend like ten hours buying these. So like, it's more like time advisor. Like, do you want to spend time trading the bots? Like, if, yeah, if one dollar would probably take you ten hours to buy a dollar of these. Cards. Trust, trust me, Honorag is even less qualified as a time <laughs> advisor than a financial advisor. Somehow, the years of dude. Every time, okay, for the first like, I'm actually pretty impressed with myself today because I said I'd be here at eleven. I woke up at like ten thirty past after like waking up through like several alarms. I see a message from Bob and he's just like, "You better be here at eleven or else." And I was like, "Oh shit!" And so like, that's why I'm not even like live streaming this. I'm. Technically, as a heads up, guys, I'm recording this, so maybe I can play it on like the stream later today. But uh, I operate on IST like all the time, so it's like fine. Indian Standard Time, so they say the like that's uh, the it's just like a it's like a joke. It's like whenever they tell you to be there is when you leave the house. So that's that's just me. <laughs> Anyways, uh, we got some Twitter questions to talk about. Uh, are there anything? Anything? Are there any interesting questions that we want to start with? Yeah, let's just go through all of them. Actually, let's start with um, yeah, let's start with the first one. So, pros and cons of your favorite decks in the format, as well as suggestions for other things to do in Richmond. This is from at Island Delver Go. Uh, we're definitely going to touch on kind of the different decks uh, in a little bit. I mean, just generally, it's just every deck has like good and bad matchups. So I guess those are the pros and cons. Um, but okay, more specifically about Richmond, it's actually one of my favorite food cities. I lived there for almost two years. Um, some some quick hits from me are barbecue at the Alamo, which I know Honorog has been to and, and really liked. Um, there is a like 
pie place called Proper Pie. They have both sweet and savory pies. That place is also amazing. Union Market is a really good sandwich place. Um, I also like SSS, Secret Sandwich Society, but I think it is slightly overrated. Um, and then in terms of restaurants, 23rd and Main is great. Um, Juan Gonzalez is good. There's there's lots of just really good restaurants in Richmond. So if you tell me what kind of food you're looking for, I can probably hit you up with some recs. All I know is that Ross Merriam said that there's a bar across the street from the convention center and I will be there. I will be there and I will be hanging out. So if you're going to be there, come say hi. Nice. I also remember Daniel and I, we got like breakfast in Richmond. Um, this was like the last tournament SEG Richmond uh, right before the pandemic, it was in January of 2020, we got breakfast and we saw like these two people get in a fight. Um, so that was also entertainment in addition to lunch, uh, to breakfast. Well then, okay, that's that's kind of cool. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, uh, I'm i excited to be in Richmond. I, I will probably just, I it, like, look, I'll probably just be following Bob and getting, I, I used to do this too a lot too when I was in DC. Like Bob and I would go out for dinner randomly sometimes and then he just ordered for me because I'm like, Bob, I don't know what's good on the menu. Just pick something. And and like it, it always worked out. So I could definitely vet these uh, these uh, places that Bob's talking about. You should check them all out in the same day. Yes. Everything. Yeah. And then if you have if you have more time um, and if you're actually looking for like things to do, which let's be let's face it, most magic players are not. They're usually only there for, you know, the days of the tournament. But if you are, I do recommend going to Belle Isle. It's like this really, really cool island in the middle of the city. Um, kind of where past where the like river is, um, and I'm actually blanking on the na- name of the river. Is it James River? Anyways, um, there's like a really really beautiful island that's really good for hiking in the middle of the city, and it's really cool because it's like a tiny island with like four different biomes. There's like tropical. There's like this whole rocky area that's really cool, uh, and then there's like a desert area. It's just like a really really cool island that used to be a civil war prison. So a little bit of history in there too. All right, next question. What is a level up or some tips you'd give players going to large competitive tournaments like the Legacy Pit Open? And this question is from Dugs on Twitch, our most beloved Maverick player. Daniel, when you wake up in the morning, what are some things that are going through your mind right before your big tournaments? Focus on your mental game so your head's in a good space. I found one of the biggest ways to easily misplay is when you can get on tilt and start spewing. So, like, for example, actually, last weekend I was playing the Mana Traders thing, and I lost to Stefan, a friend of the podcast, Stefan Shoots, and I got tilted because I couldn't believe I lost to such a bad player. But I, I was aware of it from tilting so many times. So I literally, like, went on YouTube and started watching, like, clips of, like, Dancing Cats and, like, Louis Armstrong. What a wonderful world so that I could pretend I was happy for the next round because when you're happy you can like when you're in that state you can just like focus because like when you're kind of like on tilt it's like hard to like focus on your decisions and you just kind of fumble through your turns but when you're like in a good mental state then you have like a lot of patience so I'd say the mental game is really important yeah I I can definitely get behind that one of the things that I okay I know this is like silly but if you know me you know that when I'm playing paper every like three rounds there's something I do Bob Daniel what is that thing Resleeve. I resleeve like every three rounds, right? And what I've slowly realized is, is like there's 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 two two well there's two things a lot of things to think about this. The first thing is that like okay fine like maybe I don't need to do this, but it really just like bothers me. Like it really really just irrationally bothers me when my sleeves get super sticky and like like I don't know like you just like give it to other players throughout the day and then like you might like me too like like the, a fresh pack of sleeves will just like you lose that sort of like fluid motion when you're shuffling or when you're like handling your cards and I just get. I just get tilted. I just get unreasonably tilted by that. So that's my secret. Like, if you really want to beat me, just like, I don't know, 
like before the match starts, somehow get your hands super sweaty, and I will, I will, I will freak out mid match. I'll just be like, ah, I can't do this. But like, that's my solution, right? Which is like, I understand that like this is something that bothers me when I'm playing. So just fix it. Like, like I, like I know people are like, oh, it's silly that you're resleeping all the time, but like it actually boosts my performance because that is something that like. I'm taking something that will distract me mid-match and just like chuck it out the window. It's not something that I have to deal with, right? Because something that I've noticed is that whenever I do like think about my sleeves and things like that, it's just really annoying because I'll be like, okay, this turn I can play like, you know, brainstorming determinants on their upkeep and then, you know, the next turn I'll do this, this, and ah, oh, dang it, my, my sleeves are sticking again and I really don't like it. No, like, like just like remove that sort of like mental hindrance entirely from the calculation. These are things that you could think of beforehand and then just like take care of or find solutions for live in the moment. You know what I mean? Damn, this is something I've like mercilessly mocked you for years. And this is like the first time I feel like I've gotten a good valid explanation for why you do it. Oh, no, it's always been like that. Yeah. Okay, wait, follow up question. Like, I guess now you're playing Yorion. So I guess it must be a little bit more annoying. But I guess you're still lucky because, you know, pack of sleeves comes with 100. So you have just enough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then do you, okay, if you're out of contention for the tournament, would you resleeve? Oh no, that's a that's another that's a second like issue is that like once I'm like dead in the water. Well, okay, it depends because if I was at a GP and I was gonna play for twelve three, I think I would do it. Um, like if I was like eleven three going into the last round and to play for twelve three, because I think twelve three for me is like a solid record. But if I'm like eleven four or like if I'm like if I'm if I'm playing for like eleven four, I I don't care. You know what I mean? Like it's just, that's like a different thing. That's like a mental attitude where I'm just like. I need to be a better magic player than that to just like stop caring about an event once I'm dead for top eight. But currently that's kind of like how I think, especially, and this is probably mostly because like the stakes out outside of top eight for most tournaments is like not really there. Like if I was on the pro tour, I think I would still, you know, cause like if I could get like a reinvite or something like that, then yeah, I would focus on that for sure. But as it stands, most tournaments like don't offer much to me outside of like top eighting. And so like, yeah, I just like stop caring. Fair enough. Daniel, did you have an observation on, on our ox leaving or anything else? I was just gonna, yeah, I was just gonna make a comment about Yorion and then like ask if his monthly sleeve budget was like a thousand dollars. It's like that meme where it's like help me budget and it's like sleeves once up. <laughs> like re-sleeving Yorion deck like ten times over the weekend. Yeah, I'm actually kind of nervous because you understand my workload now increases like by what? What is it like almost thirty percent or something 30%, like yeah, yeah, whatever it is. Yeah, right. So now I have to like really like the week of I just have to like do like timed uh, resleeve rotations to make sure that I don't that I don't time out IRL uh, before the next round starts. Jeez. All right, here's some more tips from me. Know what you plan on doing for food and drink, and um, basically plan in advance. So I always bring a water bottle, so I just, you know, go to a uh, water fountain to refill. Um, usually that's one of the first things I look for when I get to the tournament site is, oh, where are the water fountains? Um, obviously you can, you know, buy stuff there as well, but if, I would just show up and buy it there or, or come with it if you're going to do that. Um, also for food, like convention food is usually unhealthy. So usually what I like to do is I like to pack snacks. I like to bring, you know, fruit like bananas and apples, as well as um, like peanut butter crackers, things that kind of give me energy throughout the day. So I typically don't eat like a full meal during the day, um, but just know kind of what works for you um, and, and definitely like basically have a plan for it. Like you need to, you know, be hydrated and like thinking as well. That being said, you know, the last tournament, um, IRL tournament, I did top four SCG Baltimore on no sleep. So um, sometimes you just get lucky, but in general, it's good to have good habits. Yeah, I think that's like a general consensus that I've heard from a lot of like the top tier players is like on the day of a tournament, people like rarely eat during the tournament. 
uh, and then they just like have a big dinner kind of deal. And like to me, I I know exactly why that works for me. Uh, I will say, admittedly, it's like not the healthiest thing like to do like every day. But if it's like a tournament or something like that, like I make exceptions, and that's just like a personal choice kind of deal. But like like if I eat like a burger in the middle of the day, fifteen minutes later, I will I will be falling asleep so fast. And I just don't, I just don't want I don't want to do that right. Like I just don't want to you know sabotage my tournament by indulging in something that you know I clearly don't need in order to do to to do well in an event. So. That is um, my initial... Yeah, that's my that's my two cents on that. I do the same thing, mm -hmm. uh, except I probably spend more money because I just like buy water on site. Somewhat related. I don't know if this is specifically for tournaments or not, but at Salvaterex asked us, what do you guys eat for breakfast? This one's really easy for me. I eat cereal and milk on like 80% of days for breakfast. I, I can confirm, can confirm this. Uh, living with Bob, it was basically literally every, every day. It was like eating cereal at breakfast and... Rob, did you actually use our one spoon to eat cereal at breakfast? I did. That was a very good use for that one spoon. Okay, yeah. The yeah, so if you don't know, Bob and I lived together for two years and we had one set of chopsticks and one spoon. And since then, I definitely have upgraded. Uh my better half has bought like a lot more silverware for our house. And I believe Bob, you too are now the proud owner of multiple pieces of cutlery, so that's good. <laughs> it is good. But back then was a thing thing. Um, yeah, I think the last piece of advice that I would probably say is, is do your homework. Like, like the less stuff you have to worry about in the middle of a round, the better. You know, I, I'm talking about things like, so from a gameplay perspective, like get comfortable with autopiloting a lot of your portions, a lot of your actions so that you know, you know, that you have more time to think about like the decisions that you may have never seen before or things like that, right? Like if you see like ponder and you don't have that third land shuffle, you need to know that stuff instantly. You know what I mean? Like you need to be able to make those sort of evaluations much faster than normal. So that means, you know, either increase your playtesting sessions in paper so you can see those scenarios and evaluate them more often or just grind more magic online so you can do exact same thing. Just like, like know your deck in and out. I mean, I know this is like maybe a basic thing. Like, yeah, test your deck. But I mean, like seriously, get in the habit of like playing all the small things on autopilot so that you have more time to focus on the big things. And, and I will say that with an asterisk mark is that that's like level one. And then level two is to get good enough at playing on autopilot, but just to also get good enough with the deck where like you don't succumb to that autopilot play either right because not autopilot won't, won't always be correct so you need to like have like a like a, a default heuristic of what to do but then also like if the situation is tense or like you know like in a microsecond you should be able to say hey in this turn i need to actually get volcanic island uh, and not and not um taiga because you know next turn i might top deck a narset or something like that vice versa you get what i'm trying to say here right like like play a lot learn all the scenarios become a master of your deck Ooh. That may have been a large, tall order, but that is like getting into the habit of autopilot. Mastering autopilot, that's what I'll call it, is uh, very, very important. Yep, I stand by that. Especially in the later rounds, you're going to be tired and you're not necessarily going to be able to think through everything. But if you've seen a scenario more often, you're more likely to get it right. True chains. Well, I usually have either three things. I either have like eggs, like scrambled eggs usually, or like some bread with some jam or something, or cereal. Scrambled eggs. All right, wait. Talk talk to me about your scrambled eggs. How do you make them? Like like, what do you put them put in them? Well, I'm not a very advanced chef right now, so not very much. Sometimes I just put them on a. I would say very simple, like basically nothing. <laughs> on them. I thought you were gonna say I put them on a plate. <laughs> no, I was gonna say like I put them. Sometimes I put them on a bagel, like and and that's real fancy. Like some salt, dude. Nothing fancy. <laughs> I got you. Yeah, I've I've 
been cooking a little bit more lately and so there's my my baseline heuristic is like i just like onions a lot and cilantro and so i'll put that on almost everything Throw a little bit of cheese in there salt pepper you know it's it's good you can't really mess up scrambled eggs oh i do that with onions too dude i literally cut onions and put them in everything and when i heat up leftovers i like cut onions and add them. hell yeah I'm, I'm i'm in it i'm about that real quick before we move on to the next question What's your favorite cereal brand, both of you, on three? One, two, three. Yeah, I don't have one. I, I, I like to switch it up. Um, you know, you get bored eating the same cereal when you eat cereal as much as I do. So I usually, what I, here's okay, here's a cereal hack I like to do. I, don't, I try not to eat, you know, too much added sugar, but I also like the sweet cereal. So what I do is I take regular Cheerios and mix it in with whatever sweet cereal I'm eating, like whether it's Apple Jacks or Honey Nut Cheerios. I just combine the two so then it's slightly less sweet, but still got enough of that sugar. Yeah, I do that too. I've eat, been eating like what's this called? Harvest Crunch, Quaker Harvest Crunch. But yeah, sometimes I mix uh, sweet with not sweet. Okay, well, we are 23 minutes in, so I want to get this last question in because there's been some hot drama lately. Like if you, okay, most people will know this unless you are literally living under a rock, which I think is actually impossible. But there's this whole um, new set coming out and it's uh, Unfinity. And there's some drama behind that. Bob, explain. Is the drama just that people don't want to play with stickers? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there are definitely some, let's just say, questionable design choices. In general, a lot of people feel that, you know, these uncards are like, you know, A, not that funny, and B, like, you really don't need them in an internal format. So a lot of people are just asking, like, um, we'll, oh, no, I'll read the Twitter question now. This is from at Island Go. Should the legacy community agree to a gentleman's agreement um, to exclude certain cards? And or, and or sets you know this happens a lot in other games when the designer or developer refuses to adjust things for the community do you think that would work yeah i think that's really interesting i mean you've seen it in in a variety of games too not just magic like i think for super smash brothers there's uh they've put restrictions on some of the actions that characters can do because it just leads to like gameplay that can't particularly be policed by for example nintendo and so they're like all right well we're just going to make rules on our own and i i for one I, I don't know, man. Like, I I really don't know. I don't think I would want something like an additional stipulation in in Legacy. But here's my here's my real take, which is that I fully I fully believe that at this stage, Legacy is just a casual format, right? It's a casual format that is constructed and coded in a potentially competitive setting. Like, yeah, in theory, you could play Legacy and then get to the Pro Tour somehow. But like, it is it is you know it, it's it's pretty casual. So like, if that's the case then it goes both ways where a it doesn't matter if these unsets are in 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 uh the format because it's a casual format and whatever or b it doesn't matter what you do you could you could rule zero legacy and be like no stickers but then like you know what i mean like like i think i don't know i i just i don't feel comfortable with the idea of adding rule zero but i think if it ended up happening i just wouldn't care. So I actually do have an opinion on this, and I, I strongly believe that this would just a not work, and b probably be a bad idea. Um, I mean, first of all, like you mentioned, um, you know, I think the legacy player base isn't that big. Like, yeah, I would say there's probably you know a few thousand people who play every year, maybe more. Um, but like, if you want to splinter the community, like, not everybody's going to agree that they don't want to play with stickers. And, and even something like stickers, like, you know, first of all, the power level is probably not going to be there for Legacy. And at least um, Wizards made the smart decision where you can only put stickers on cards you own. So, like, you know, nobody's going to put a sticker on your Underground Sea. Like, that's just not a thing that's happening. So from 
like that perspective, you know, they, they're getting around a lot of the complaints. I think more of the complaints are kind of like gameplay oriented. Like people don't enjoy rolling dice. Um, people don't enjoy counting the number of vowels in their cards. It just, it feels like kind of like a wacky thing to do. And I'm just confused why they think this needs to be in a tournament setting at all. And I think it, I think the reason they did that is because they want it to be available in an EDH setting, but our EDH already has rule zero. So I feel like, I don't know. I feel like EDH groups should themselves figure out if they want to play with the uncards. Um, that being said, I mean, I guess they like to set a standard, but I'm just not sure that that standard makes sense to also apply to legacy and vintage. Yeah, this didn't seem like that big of an issue to me because like, what's the worst case scenario? You go to a paper event and some guy's like rolling clown cars and like putting stickers on cards. Like it seems pretty funny to me. So, so like that scenario is fine, but then what if that scenario is like the best deck? Then that would be kind of annoying if you really just didn't want that. Well, I would find that pretty funny, but I guess I'm kind of a, tr- a joker troll. So, wait, you you don't think Space Comet, uh, the Super Pup, is gonna just like destroy and tear apart Legacy? No, that card actually I am scared of. That's the card I'm most scared of in the unset, but it also somewhat feels like a real magic card. The only thing I don't like about it is how much die rolling is involved. And here's my thing about die rolling is like, are we going to have like the next generation of like die roll cheaters who like don't do a full die roll? Because like that shit is hard to police too. And that's one qualm I have with Maddening Hex is like I played against someone with, with it in IRL and I rolled a five and a six and I like wasn't cheating, but like I would be kind of pissed if I were the opponent. Um, but yeah, I just don't like die rolling as a mechanic right i don't know if there's a way to like standardize that like you know to have like an app or something like that like that you could use but yeah i agree it just it just feels bad uh yeah <laughs> so bob confirmed not playing clown car and eight cast I, I actually did look at that card for eight cast but i i decided it didn't you know make sense unless you were die roll cheating basically so yeah there's a clown car that like rolls dice and then if you have odd you you make tokens and if you have even you add counters and making tokens is very good but adding counters is not very good it makes a lot of like it's you roll a dice for x right so if you do five you roll five dice yeah then again it's you know it's a lot of mana too so yeah so if you pay like eight mana you could roll eight dice so it could be pretty good if you're trying to like get everybody pissed off at how much dice oh yeah what if you have like a hundred dice what if you like go infinite then I think you need a computer-generated app. Well, yeah. I guess technically if you go infinite, that's decided. Um, if you go infinite, then you make infinite of each. Okay, never mind. That's a different thing. Yeah. You know you know what? Since we're already sort of on the topic, let's just dive into... It was originally going to be our second topic, but let's make it our first topic, which is a potential you know, legacy format panel to just like how the popper format panel has it, like they're able to kind of, um, you know, weigh in. And basically, honestly, although they're they're supposed to just be giving advice... It seems like Wizards of the Coast has just followed their advice every single time and, you know, just done um, whatever bans needed to be done. Uh, so do you guys think this would also work in Legacy? As long as they put me on it, <laughs> for sure. I, I'll back this 100%. I have great bans ideas. I don't know. I I really don't know. I think for me, the one thing that I want or one thing. Okay, here, here's things. Here's here's my here's my take. Right. And I think, Bob, we've talked about this and my take is maybe changed or evolved based on some of the stuff that you know we've talked about. But basically, one thing that I really like is transparency, communication, just like like not being left in the dark, wondering why Oko Thief of Crowns has not been banned for almost a year. You know what I mean? Like like even if it's just like a hey, look here's our data. Hey, look, here's a reasoning, you know, like once a month or something that, that, that would at least make me feel better. Even if it's not something that I necessarily agree with, or even if it's not necessarily 
something that you know i am happy to see so like for that reason i would say that the the panel like a, the idea of a panel alone would be super interesting so they obviously they don't talk about legacy every month however um and this recent ban was popper only but the last ban that involved other formats they did touch on legacy because a lot of people were you know complaining about ei and murktide and they touched on legacy and i think they basically more or less cited that the win rate wasn't egregious so they decided to kind of keep it around so that is some level of transparency that i i think like if they give us that level, I mean, I'd like more, but I think it's at least something is basically if they if they do bans for multiple formats, um, then they'll mention legacy. Um, so I'm I'm honestly good with that. It's interesting they cite the win rate. I mean, I'm not a bans expert, but a lot of times like they banned decks in the past, like Inverter and Twin that had like sub fifty percent win rate. So I don't know if they're like picking when they want to choose it, or maybe there's more context to that anyway yeah i mean they have the league data right now because of the um you know legacy data collection group we basically have all of the challenge data which is you know super awesome we'll dive into it uh soon when we talk about um decks to choose but um you know we also have access to a lot of the data now um which is which is very neat uh and i mean i think previously they basically cited 55 percent for the ban threshold and and right now you know blue red is not at that threshold um however about a third of decks um like 30 percent uh play expressive iteration and even more of them play it online than irl so it skews it uh a little bit so that would be like the one card that i would you know ask them to take a hard look at given that it's in so many different blue decks whether it's blue tempo or blue control um that would be the one card that you know gives me the most pause right now um but yeah okay back to back to the panel like I am also against it because, well, okay, so first of all, I think it would have to be anonymous because, I mean, this is no joke, like, these pauper people, like, they are doing the best they can, I even if I don't, you know, think they make the best decisions, um, like, they are not, you know, they're coming from a good spot, but they're still getting, you know, literally, like, you know, threats to their personal well-being and, like, death threats, like, and that is just not cool, so I think I would want it to be somewhat anonymous, but then again, if it's anonymous... You know, there's a little bit less accountability. Um, you know, really what we want is just for wizards to kind of, you know, give the transparency. And so I feel like since they're trying a little bit better of a job of doing that, I would, you know, hold off before starting a panel. Because for a panel, what I really fear is, um, you know, they go out and make the wrong bans. Like, that's what I would be really worried about. Um, you know, I feel like the popper panel has banned, like, really weird cards before, like, just like some random cards for Tron. Um, and yeah, maybe there was some good reasoning behind it, but I don't know if I would want, you know, something like Fable of the Mirror Breaker to be banned in Legacy because it's been doing very well in showcase challenges re recently. Like, like that's literally a topic of discussion that has come up recently. It's like, oh, Blue Red's not doing that well. Like Fable decks are doing really well, but um, I, I just don't think that's a good approach. I really like the conservative approach that Wizards takes. I do feel like they take too long most of the time, but I still think taking too long and landing at the right spot is better than, you know, overbanning. Yeah, see, this is this is where I'm going to like chime in and just be like, I don't know. I think differently on this topic. I don't necessarily mind updates to the format. In the letter that I wrote to Wizards about Raghavan, I actually gave them multiple options, right? I, I see what you're saying, Bob, where you're like, oh, I'm afraid that they're going to just mess something up. They're going to ban the wrong card. 
why couldn't they just undo it? You know what I mean? Like, it's fine if they make mistakes. Like, if Wizards came out to you and said, hey, we made a mistake banning this card, we're going to change this, how would you feel about that? Would you be like, oh my goodness, how could you make a mistake? You're a shitty company. Or would you be like, wow, you know, props to you for actually admitting that you made a mistake uh, or like reevaluating. Now, obviously, if it happens like a 30 times in a row, like maybe that's a bad thing. But like every now and then, like, do you think that's a bad thing? No, I think I would be fine with that. And like, as an example of that, I'd really like them to unban Zerda because I think it would potentially be interesting with the companion nerf. But um, it doesn't seem like something that they actually do now. Like they, they haven't unbanned a card in a really, really long time. And um, perhaps even more importantly, they haven't unbanned like a relevant card. Like all the cards they've unbanned have been pretty much irrelevant. So. Yeah, I, the way I see the ban list is that there's like a couple of things you want to think about the value of, which is like, one of the first things I would think about, I guess it might be a little bit unrelated exactly to the console, but it's like, is Legacy like a format that people like where it is now, or do they want to grow it more? Because and uh, and like how much people want to hold on to what it is versus like, uh, like so like I could see a direction. Like I've been thinking about a days ban for a while, and I think like if like for example if Watsi did something crazy like ban days and let you like proxy dual lands, I think they could actually make Legacy a, pr a popular for format in paper. I mean, that, that might sound a bit crazy, but like, so I'm saying it like, it depends on what direction they want to take. So like, for example, that would be like a days versus no days format. Like, do people want to like keep playing like days, like how it's been for like the last 15 years in the tradition, or are they a bit more open to like, uh, the format going in a new direction? And that's really just a, uh, like, valid, like what people uh, want overall, but also it can relate to like other factors. Like, is the format like fine where it is now, or do they want it to like grow? It seems like nobody really cares about it growing but i think it's like a good format and uh something i mean i think the format would grow if you let people proxy duels for sure but i don't see i don't know that i would buy the argument that banning days oh more people would enjoy that um i mean i feel like the people now it's a pretty like close split for the people who do enjoy days in the format and people who don't i would i would suggest that people more people prefer days being in the format than not um yeah, like I would say it's a tradition thing. I think that I thought about it because a couple of years ago when somebody said that to me, I'm like, oh, that sounds absurd. You need days. But then I thought about it. I mean, I'm kind of developed a view that days is just like a really broken card and like everything wrong with legacy is like because of days and like it's and, it met, and it's like dealt and like days decks are so broken. And then I thought like, so what happens if you ban days? Like a bunch of people will play like more blue soup decks and then. Uh, well, I would say like the issue is kind of let me collect my thoughts with days I just noticed days is a card that really punishes you and there's like not much you can do to play around it Like if you're playing like a game against a deck with days a lot of time You just get so punished by days and there's like nothing you can do I don't know exactly like the most eloquent way to put it But like most cards don't punish you that much like most cards don't put you in a bad position or in a position to be in a bad exchange That simply because usually well, they have what to, about like, Radovan like well, that was, they banned it. I mean, yeah, I thought Ragavan was absurd too. Okay, I, fair. So I, I, I can see what you're saying then. I mean, obviously, so, but here's my other issue with the panel is like, sometimes there's no right answer, right? Like I think with the card like Days, like there is no right answer if, if it should be banned or not. I guess the question does come down to, you know, what do you want for the format? Um, so I, I, it would be really tough for this panel to, to make the right call some of the time. Um, but I, I guess they would, you know, get the obvious things um, correct more of the time than not and do it quicker than Wizards. So, I mean, I'm not totally against the panel, but I do worry that it would, you know, make a misstep when I think I'm actually quite happy with how Wizards has banned cards other than the fact that they've been too slow. 
Um, what I'm not happy with Wizards about, and this is actually another topic that's related that's come up, is I'm not happy about you know all these crazy souped up supplemental sets. It's just getting honestly a lot of time to track, and like I don't even read all the spoilers anymore. I used to, I used to, but now it's just impossible, or it just takes way too much time. Um, so all these supplemental sets, you know, are are upsetting for a variety of reasons. You know, power creep, stickers, whatever. Um, people actually proposed this other format a while ago called Heritage, where it's basically legacy, but every legal set has to have come through standard, um, or you know, basically been from like the original sets from when before they had standards. So like you know, Alpha Beta Unlimited, that's still legal, but um, sets like you know, randomly Portal Three Kingdoms never went through standard, so that would be gone. Um, but also obviously the modern horizon sets would be gone and that would be the big one. And that, that format actually appeals to me a ton. I've never really liked old school or pre-modern because I feel like those formats are not getting new cards. So eventually they'll get, you know, solved at some point. And so I just like worry about the longevity of those formats, but a format like heritage where you are still getting new standard cards and like the cards might be, you know, you still may get cards like Dreadhorde Arcanist that are too powerful for, for Legacy, but I feel like that would happen far less often and it would be for like a Legacy specific reason. And I think it would just be like, you know, um, less of Wizards shoving cards down our throats to buy and it would just like actually be an interesting way to kind of grow the format. So do you guys have thoughts on, on Heritage as a format? Yeah, <clears throat> I think Heritage could actually be a good format to play in because I mean like, a lot of the pro okay here's the reason why i think it's actually good not because i think it would be the perfect format but because it would be a different format where we actually get to experience like what legacy could look like that's what i'm talking about earlier right which is like you know wizards i would rather them like overcorrect because you can you can undo overcorrection right like you can undo overcorrection and this would be a massive undoing of a lot of overcorrection i think one of the options like like let's say like you know I had to change the legacy ban list in some capacity. There are, there's not just like one decision that I have, right? There are multiple different plans that I would have available to, uh, you know, just like to, to pursue, right? So one action might be like ban days. Okay, maybe we don't do that. Maybe instead we go after Merktide. Okay, maybe instead of that we go after expressive iteration, or maybe instead of that we go after iteration and Merktide and Uro. You see what I'm saying? There's one combination that I have talked about before, and that is just the nuclear option, which is like. Get rid of everything like that was really dumb after War of the Spark. Uh, like you know, cards like Narset, Karn, Teferi. Get rid of cards like Murktide Reach, and get rid of cards like Expressive Iteration. Keep cards like Elvish Reclaimer. You know things like that. There are certain cards that would stay. Certain cards would go. But it is a massive upheaval um, of the format, and that is essentially what Heritage is like, right? Because you know you're cutting out like a giant chunk of cards that have caused problems, like. No more Murktide region. No more True Name Nemesis. No more Flusterstorm. Well, the Flusterstorm is actually kind of a fair card, but like it is, it is that like it is in essence the nuclear option, just with a different spin, a much more um, uh, what is it called? A much more uh, like palatable because you're not like really banning cards. You're more just like seeing like, oh hey, does this other thing would it be better or not? Yeah, but I was also gonna say like objective rather than subjective because subjective is like, oh, I don't think this card is good enough, so I'm going to, or I think this card is too good, so I'm going to ban it. This 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 is more of like a this card was printed in this set, therefore rule says ban. You know what I mean? It's not like it's not like there's like any evaluation behind. Uh, or a per personal, right. and it's not even banned. It's just, it's just, it was never legal. So. Right, right. So, like, you know, I, I don't know. I, in my mind, I think this is a valid. I think this is pretty valid, um, in the sense of it replicates an option to curate legacy 
that I think is legitimately valid. And it does so in a way that is not like overly toxic, which is just like, you know, heckling over like 20 cards that, you know, could or couldn't exist. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem like a format that Wizards would ever really implement mm -hmm. um, because, I mean, they're making tons of money selling these supplemental sets. And I'm not against, you know, a company making money. Obviously, that's kind of partly what they exist for. But then obviously, you know, obviously they don't want to go too far on, on one end and just worry about shareholder value rather than, you know, worry about the community as well. Like, that's the part that, you know, seems to be, miss be missing a little bit lately. Um, that being said, you know, I do like some of the supplemental sets like Warhammer 40k looks cool as fuck. Like I've never played that game before, but now I'm actually like reading about it and like slightly interested. Uh, probably don't have time for another giant hobby like Magic, but like I, I think like some of the crossovers can be done tastefully and, and be interesting. Um, so I'm not totally against supplemental sets, but I am kind of against, you know, the fire philosophy in general and trying to get everybody to buy every set. Yeah, I, uh, I, I think I agree with you on that. I there's probably merit behind heritage and I would like to try it at least once. Yeah, we should um yeah, like we already started, you know, talking about it a little bit, so I'm sure at some point um in the next year, like we will try to get some sort of like streamer tournament or something set up. Um or maybe we could even make it like be an open tournament on MTG Melee or something. Like that would be cool too. Um so definitely something we're going to um put some more thought into. Okay, cool. Let's get on to the the topic du jour, which is kind of recent results. And I'm going to caveat this with, um, so the results I'm going to go through right now are basically results from Magic Online challenges since Ren and si or sorry, since Minsk and Boo uh, and Maddening Hex entered the format, and along with all the other Dominaria United cards. So that was basically September first on Modo, um, and so these are the top performing decks. And so number one, surprisingly, is Cephalid Breakfast what? Uh, at 64%. Yes, <laughs> let me just get through them all. Um, at 64% win rate, uh, which is about 1% uh, of the meta. Doomsday at 59% win rate, which is about 2% of the meta. Four Color Control, thanks to Honorog, um, that's at 57% uh, win rate, 4% of the meta. Lands, that's about 55% win rate, 2% of the meta. Uh, and then, so those are kind of like the top four decks that are above 55% win rate or above. Um, Blue-Red Delver, which includes Blue-Red Shredder as well, that is 19% of the metagame and winning at about 51%. So above average, but not significantly above average. Usually, I think the Blue-Red Delver deck is is closer to like 52 or 53%, and during Ragavan it might have been a little bit higher, but I think part of it is just that the format has definitely adapted even more to kind of um, face kind of the, the tier zero deck of the format so that it's not necessarily winning like an egregious amount. There are also lots of other theories for why it wins less during showcases. Like maybe, um, you know, less experienced players are playing it because they're just coming to play the showcase. Um, so that's valid as well. It's kind of hard to figure out exactly what it is, but basically Blue-Red is winning at a healthy rate. Um, it's not, you know, over over powerful but it is still winning more than 50 percent. yeah um so this is something interesting too i i i i'm just gonna briefly touch on this but i don't numbers are great but do you think numbers tell you everything about the like the format health and the gameplay and things like that i i wanted to mention this earlier but like with the with ragavan and stuff like that i was kind of surprised that you know you'd use numbers to justify keeping a card like that legal for as long as it was legal when the gameplay was just so like awkwardly unfun you know what i mean mm -hmm. i i think 
I think you have to have both. You need the numbers and you need the gameplay. Like if Ragavan were super unfun, but the deck was only winning 45% of the time, like it just wouldn't be seeing that much play eventually when people figured out that it's not that good. Um, and then you wouldn't need to ban it. So I think you do need both. But I agree that numbers don't tell the full story. These numbers are also, you know, quote unquote, like the average pilot on the deck. You know, for a brief period, a lot of the really good Delver players were on Shadow. And then so it seemed like Shadow was a lot better than Delver because it was winning a lot more. But then that was also just partly because a lot of really strong Delver players were playing Shadow for a period. So you, you need to, you know, look at everything with a grain of salt and also obviously look at the, you know, N as well to, to make sure it's statistically relevant. So I think you do need to kind of consider both factors when, you know, making your deck choice um, slash making band decisions. That's something I think that the, the uh, whatchamacallit, the panel could also help with is a uh, thought but anyways okay cool um daniel you can say something that we can get back to the topic i, I just want, didn't want to derail too long yeah i was gonna say the numbers can be pretty dis- appearances can be deceiving because like you see a lot of times quote-unquote broken decks like inverter have like 49 percent win rate or splinter twin has sub 50 so i would say like when i look at this data you have to like understand like the context it's in it's like in the context of like um when you have like every player playing against every player on like every deck so it tells you like a specific type of data but it doesn't tell you like all the data about the decks in the format so like it tells you like what happens when like a ran- like random play like a random sample of random <laughs> sorry like it kind of tells so, you like it a, tells it, you about the population but it doesn't tell you about you know like the best player like maybe the best player is winning 80 percent of the time with splinter twin and like basically they just can't lose so um, that potentially could be a factor for banning a deck that has a 49% win rate. So. Yeah. Like, I would say, like, it gives you, like, a, a data from, like, a, a context, a specific context, so you should, like, be aware of the context when you're making the decisions, where it's coming from. And also, like, when you're doing bans, you also, you want to make, like, usually you'd want to do a ban that's, like, benefits everyone, kind of. Or, like, for example, I've been playing some, like, like, I know, like, in League or Dota, when they do bans, they have, they think about two things. They think about, like, the competitive scene and, like, the public, uh, like, the pub games because like the hero the hero win rates tend to be different in both of them and they try and balance for like both of them so it's like kind of like when you're doing ban lists like you're you want to balance for like everyone kind of but yeah i would say that's the main thing like when, when i hear those win rates it's not like those are everything it's like the the data from a specific context i would say yeah and and, and this is still legacy i mean if you're talking about decks to recommend for this weekend it's still number one priority is like rec- i would still recommend the deck that you can play well um, even if a deck, you know, overall win rate, like something like, you know, reanimators is 49%. Um, I lost reanimator in the top four of SCG Baltimore because they came up with a really nice sideboard plan to beat Delver. They played four Carpet of Flowers, four Show and Tell. Uh, I didn't see any Underground C, so I didn't board for Show and Tell. And then they just got me real good. So, like, I think if it's more important for you to know, like, your plan in every matchup than for you to like look at the data and be like okay cephalid breakfast 64 percent i'll play that and win 64 percent like that's not how any of this works obviously um so so it's just another thing to kind of consider um that being said honor you're definitely surprised by some of the numbers in particular i guess cephalid breakfast being um so high um or or i don't do you have any comments on, on any of the decks okay so is there like even enough of a sample size to really take that deck seriously i think there is like what is your threshold at least consider it the uh, hamster it, boss is molding <laughs> yeah also also my my data is you know as of as i said um september 1st so that's not very much data at all but if we go all the way back to the um ban which was late january 
then cephalid breakfast is winning like 53.6 percent so it's still like that's really good pretty good that's really good i don't know yeah i mean they're let's let's see um going back to the ragavan ban um let me see what decks are above you know 53 percent there's bomberman at 54 percent cephalid breakfast at 53.6 percent that i mentioned doomsday 54.7 percent green white deaths 53.5 percent there are a few decks out there winning that much but there yeah there really aren't that many okay that's really interesting and i and i i would really like if any cephalid breakfast champions could chime in to why the deck might be doing so well right now javier if you're listening to this uh which you know <laughs> i doubt but would appreciate some thoughts then again yeah so i i also looked at the head-to-head matchups mm-hmm. um which is just another recent innovation of the legacy data collection project they're not only getting the overall win rate but they're literally getting the matchup win rate um problem with that is the sample size is even smaller but um at least it's something and the matchup data for cephalid breakfast shows that it's basically 50 percent against delver and it's bad against control but then it is beating like almost everything else because it's kind of a a, a deck that gets to play a turn two combo but then also gets to play all these other fair cards that are just like good more generally in the format. And then if at any point you stumble, then they can just you know drop the combo on you. Um, usually Control and Delver are well set up to deal with that just because they play lots of removal and counter spells uh, and interaction in general. But then the, the less interactive decks um, are bad against Breakfast because Breakfast has the interaction. And then um, if you don't interact with Breakfast, you just die. So that's my theory of why it's like a pretty good deck. Okay. I can see that. I mean, and sometimes you, yeah. This is something that I also remember. I was watching a a, a video of Bryant Cooks on uh, YouTube once, and I think he said something about like the Epic Storm just has a really bad breakfast matchup because it's it's like a lot. It's fast combo. It's got enough resilient effects like Force of Will. One like a little bit of discard. I don't think they play too many thought seasons. Maybe just like the one or two Cabal therapies, but still that could matter. Things like that. You know what I mean? It's like it hits from many angles and. uh very few decks can actually handle all those angles, those two decks being, I think, Delver. Just like, historically, that's what it's been anyways. Delver and Control are the decks that are normally, like, best um, able to handle rogue uh, strategies or things like that just by virtue of having very flexible, very powerful cards. So I can understand if maybe Cephalid Breakfast is beating up on the rest of the format. However, my caveat here is, is like, look, if you're going to the Legacy Pit this weekend and your goal is to win that's just simply not the kind of deck i personally would play if you're going to have fun then yeah sure you can play whatever you want but like i think if you want that the 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 championship prize the uh the the belt then you are going to have to like find a deck that can you know do the sort of cool combo elements that cephalid breakfast is doing but also be resilient to a lot of the interaction that the in my mind two hallmark decks of the format or like the histories format uh, history of the format in the history of the format there we go um you need to be able to like brace yourself for have uh for all the interaction that they might provide that 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 thought was like a little bit all over the place but basically i think current iterations of the rogue decks are too fragile anytime i think we've ever really seen a deck break that resiliency or not be fragile like it's something egregiously wrong like breach mm-hmm. in terms of like a combo deck being too good yeah so tldr like even if i see even if you like woo me with like a uh, really high numbers I'd probably still just be like, eh, you know, like, I don't know. I think play 100 matches against the best two decks. Okay, so you're specifically saying if it's not good against the blue decks, you're not that interested. I think so, yeah. Um, which is fair. Um, 
I mean, like the data shows it's kind of like close to 50-50 against Delver. Um, so that's reasonable, but I guess it's, you know, it's comparing, you know, average players against average players. I disagree with that. That's not reasonable. That is not a reasonable win rate. Honestly, this is what I was suggesting on Twitter is like literally every deck that's bad against Delver should add four carpet of flowers, um, or literally every green deck and, and then just see like, does that, you know, move the needle? It pro it probably will. It probably definitely will. But here's here. Let, let me explain this thing that I was saying earlier. If your win rate against the best deck, the most popular deck in the format is 50-50, you are not going to top yeah, eight. Yeah, but Max literally won the tournament with Doomsday, and it's a, it's way worse than 50-50 against Delver. I think he played against Delver once. Right. Um, but he also had a good plan for Delver. His plan was Shieldred, and I think most Delver players were not ready for that at all. And it sounds like the plan that actually happened was just dodge. Well, but I think he the one match he did play, he won with Shieldred. Sure, okay. I think that's fine. Here's something that I'll tell you about Doomsday as well. Doomsday in general, so like this is something that I also think applies to the Delver matchup against Control, but maybe like Doomsday's matchup against Delver is like when you have to resolve, or when you have to resort to like, I'm gonna just call it cheese, like, like whatever it is, like, I don't know, just like, yeah, like a cheese strategy, right? When you have to resolve to uh, resort to that, rather, I think that's just a surrendering that your matchup in that is just really bad, and so you are trying to like catch your opponent off guard. And historically, we have seen Doom Doomsday do that many, 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 many times. Whether it's with cards like Baleful Strikes, whether it's with cards like uh, you know, like shifting into Tempo Tempo Merktide or Tempo Doomsday, whether it's with you know, like a it's splashing white for mentors and Teferis and things like that. I, I just think that every sort of like sideboard strategy you see with Doomsday is always becoming something else or doing something else that the opponent is not ready for. You also saw this a lot of the time. In in ad nauseum tendrils like back in the day whether it was sideboarding like you know sylvan library city of solitude empty the warrens you know i could go on like underworld dreams or is it underworld dreams like the one black black swamp swamp taps to draw card that like there's all these sort of like dark confidant right like i could i could, I, could, I could just keep going on forever what that means to me is that your deck just cannot handle like heads up the matchup and that's fine that's fine that's i'm not saying that like it's a bad deck because it can't do that but i'm just saying that it's just like it's like you have to resort to these sort of strategies, and that is a tactical solution that you're allowed to do, and I think it's fine, but it just means that your matchup is really bad. That That's it, right? Like, So, like, looking at looking at Shieldred and being, like, scoreboard doesn't really surprise me because next week, I bet you Max probably won't be playing Shieldred. Probably be on some other sort of tech that, you know, that just, like, decides step uh, all the... No, Shieldred's Shieldred just a good card, first of all, and it, it basically races Delver by itself, which is super impressive like i think people definitely slept on that card in terms of how playable it is in legacy um i think you do make the point that like yeah basically it's a juke strategy and i think juke strategies can be good especially if it's the first weekend that people are not ready for it but even the second weekend like oh delver might know about you know probably most delver players won't even know about the shieldred plan but even the ones that do know they might not necessarily be fully ready for it um like they you know like unholy heat's just like such a crappy card to leave in post board. Um, maybe uh, and then and maybe the shieldred plan actually you know let's just say in theory the shieldred plan is really strong against Delver. It changes the win rate post board to like something reasonable. Um, then Delver can eventually adjust and like add a Caracas to the sideboard, something like that, um, and then it, it flips it again. But like I think for that period where Delver has not adjusted, like you could be in just like a very very good spot if you're a Doomsday deck that doesn't lose the Delver. Well, I would say one of the things about Shieldred is she seems like good against like decks besides Delver, but I would say as a Delver player, 
she doesn't seem that scary because like she's she'll like lose a race to Murktide or DRC. Well, um, you have like I, days. I don't think you can actually deck. win a yeah, race against like, children with DRC, it. especially if you're not you know drawing any cards because if you're drawing cards, you're losing the race. Um, so I don't see how you really race Shieldred. Murktide, yes, but that is also a card that you typically are shaving on in the matchup. I mean, yeah, maybe if you know they have Shieldred, maybe you change that plan. But um, Max's plan also is, you know, he has four Dark Ritual, four Lotus, or three Lotus Petal, two Cabal Ritual. Like, so he's trying to cast this thing on turn one or two, um, which does change the, the math on the race. But I, yeah, I would say one of the reasons that she might not be a gimmick is she's just like, like he's, he was saying he was boring it against like Mono Red Stompy. It's just like a card that can solo a lot of decks. Like if you play against like Grizzlebrand decks, they can't use their Grizzlebrand anymore. It's just like, it's like a card that when it's in play, it's like makes it really hard for your opponent to win if they can't remove it. And a lot of the other alternate win conditions aren't really like that. Like the way that it just completely dominates the board. What I would say like the, one of my first impressions of it, because it was, it reminded me of like a true name with a batter skull in play. It kind of has that impression. Against non-white decks, right? Because white decks have Plow and Caracas, but against all the other decks, fair decks in the format, it kind of is somewhat difficult to remove because it has five toughness and it's a four drop. So it kind of just sits there and is like, yeah, I'm probably going to erase anything that you do. And it, it, is, it only costs four mana. It's only one card. So from that perspective, um, it is very interesting to me. Like if I had reps with Doomsday, you know, Doomsday with Shieldred in the sideboard, I'd probably play like three Shieldred and just see if that was like kind of good enough against Delver. So um, yeah, definitely try that if you're a, a seasoned Doomsday player. Yeah, I, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying like my take is that like it's just like that type of strategy is... It's interesting. I don't know. I kind of forgot like why I was even talking. But what question did you ask me that made me go on this like rant? I don't know. Um, but actually, I will say, I will say. <laughs> so the showcase challenge top eight was was pretty stacked, and it was kind of full of people who had a lot of experience with the format and probably did something a little bit different with their decks. Um, so obviously, you know, Max added Children to the sideboard. Um, there was a mono black Stompy player who had four Shieldred main deck, so I think they were definitely onto something there. Um, just this card that people you know weren't ready for, um, and and was able to kind of solo games. Um, I didn't make too many adjustments. I played two unlicensed Hearse uh, in the main deck of Acast, but I think it, some even a small change like that was enough to shift the blue red matchup um, back in my favor. I was seven two against Delver kind of um, since I've made that change. Um, so. That's another kind of, you know, basically small strategic shifts that people are thinking about and making like XJ Cloud. I guess this he made this innovation a while ago, but he, he brought Dead Gone to the main of Moonstompy. Um, people are, are really like thinking about what changes they can do to be better against Delver, be better against the expected metagame. And so if you can really figure out something like that before a big tournament like the Legacy Pit, you definitely can have an edge. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I agree with that. And those sort of like micro adjustments are like exactly what you'd expect to see out of like just like natural developments in a metagame. So honestly, that is, if anything, that's just a sign of like health, right? Like people are adapting and evolving. Uh, I, I don't know. I think for me, um, lately, I have been a lot less stressed out about uh, my matchup against Delver particularly, but that's also because I... Well, that's one thing, but I also, like, I got a broken card that, like, helps a lot. Yeah, maybe that's just, like, what's happening for other people, too, right? It's just that uh, if the plan is, like, the, if the plan for handling expressive iteration in Merktide region is to, like, like raise all ships and, like, give all ships access to 
all decks better access to powerful cards then like i guess that's one solution too but then that's also like kind of power creepy too but like i don't know children also doesn't strike me as the kind of card that would like like warp a meta game so me i mean caracas is just like a huge headache for anybody playing shieldred unless you have nothing else that's weak against it which you know that's what the mono black deck is kind of but actually i don't i don't think we recorded since you won two challenges in a row so we, we have to talk a little bit about that like definitely major congrats man like Winning one challenge, I mean, I've never done it before. Winning two in a row, I think that definitely shows that you, like, kind of, quote-unquote, broke something in the meta. But then at the same time, um, you know, nobody, in your words, you said, oh, nobody else can play this deck. So can you just kind of elaborate on on winning the two challenges and, and what you meant by that? Yeah, it was easy. <laughs> no, I don't know. Yeah, like, so I think, I think here's, like... If I looked at all my matchups, uh, realistically speaking, even my bad matchups, somehow I was just winning, right? And and here's the thing, like this is just like historically, like why you would want to play control is because control is like it's one of those like flexible decks where you just get to pick and choose like answers to certain spots, and and your cards will like eventually you'll just win the game. It's, it's just generically good, right? But the hard part about control is to make sure that you have the right answer for the right deck at the right time in the right metagame. And I think finally I've been able to crack it. And the reason I've been able to crack it is because I've 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 learned something, right? Uh, before there was one subset of decks that I used to care a lot about uh, in beating. And maybe this is like something that like trans, you know, just like crossed over the years and just like became like a a mental block in my headspace. But that is like the card Dark Ritual. Like I always wanted to have. A, a, a solid plan or matchup against Dark Ritual. And recently, I kind of just realized, like, screw that. Why do I need to respect this deck? I'll just take the L. That's fine. Nobody really even plays Dark Ritual, like, like especially in, like, paper tournaments. I think you're not going to see Dark Ritual as much. So why bother, right? Like, just, like, take those slots, increase my win percentage against a lot of the other decks, and then just go from there. Like, if you look at the top tier of decks, I think... Well, okay, what I imagine the top tier of decks were, it'd be like like Delver, like Jeskai, like any sort of like, you know, I don't know, Lance. Like I guess I guess now my, my sort of mentality has, has changed a little bit where I'm also looking at decks like Moon Stompy and like Death and Taxes, like all these sort of like like uh, creature decks, tribal decks in general, I want to also have a good plan for. And so as soon as I as soon as I just like cut my dark ritual hate, I I was able to find more space for things like dress down which is really good in all those sort of matchups that I was struggling in against. And then, you know, I was able to, like the other breakthrough I think was like cutting like Force of Negation because I think that card is like really bad. Delver players had cut Force of Negation for, for like a long time ago. And like, I don't, I don't know why I was still playing it. I can't kind of, was it was kind of like one of those things where like I wanted to have a good combo matchup, but then like, what did I do? Instead, I added Hydroblast to my sideboard and I added Pyroblast, more Pyroblast to my sideboard. And suddenly, you know, I'm, I'm correcting in other ways that are more meaningful in other matchups. So like, yeah, I don't know that, that sort of, deck construction wise helped a lot and in terms of just like playing the deck like i don't really know what to say like i think people are just hesitant to try something like this i too was in that exact camp i think the perfect example to showcase like the position that i'm in is like the position that chase may have been in a long time ago so i'm talking about strifo so strifo like you know there was a period of time where strifo was just like absolutely obliterating all of magic online and people just weren't playing his deck like i don't know why people look at that mana base and they're just like four colors oh no that's so many dual lands you lose to wasteland and chase was like well, actually, you don't lose to Wasteland. And I was like, nah, you lose to Wasteland. And I was like, he was like, actually, no, you don't. So then, like, a long time later, when I finally tried it, I was like, wait, 
you're right. You don't just lose to Wasteland. You do lose to like Wasteland plus Stifle or Lone plus Wasteland. More importantly, cards like Blood Moon, cards like Price of Progress, those are scary. But if they're on your radar, you can play around those kind of things, right? Look at the way I've built my sideboard, right? There's three Hydroblasts in the sideboard. I'm contemplating a fourth one, you know, things like that. Like, it's just like, it's, it's, you, you build your... <laughs> yeah yeah like not e not even like as a joke like with minskin boosting a lot more play now too i think hydroblast is getting a lot better right like it's also funny because like i would say minskin boo actually has completely shattered the the delver matchup in half and and the reason i say that is because and and daniel you know once i finish you're you're more than happy to like you know chime your thoughts in but I think I think it, it really just split the uh, the attention of the Delver deck and like diverts the focus. If it, it, like my primary strategy against Delver is to basically at all costs hold up Red Blast through a daze um, to to stop something like Expressive Iteration. And once you like bottleneck the cards, the card advantage, then it's a lot easier to fight toe to toe because well you know you're just a meteor deck. Your threats do more things. If you can start resolving those cards by denying your opponent the the access to resource that they would normally need to handle them, then suddenly you are doing much better, right? And so that's one thing. But like the reason Minskin Boom matters is because beforehand, the, the deck density, the threat density in the control decks was, was honestly embarrassing. It was just like Uro, maybe a couple mentors, like, okay, planeswalkers that don't actually end the game. God forbid you're playing Jace the Mind Sculptor in this day and age, right? Like, like there's just no way to actually close the games. You could just get like lose to a Caracas or lose to a Surgical Extraction. And that's very, very frustrating. And now suddenly you have this planeswalker that like, if it's, it's like a gut check. Sure, it dies to Lightning Bolt, but it's a gut check. Like, if they don't have it right then and there, they will lose the game. You know what I mean? Like, you put a 4-4 into play that'll eventually draw a card, draw a bunch of cards, also deal some damage. Like, that. this is the thing, too. And it also, like, here's... Like, I could I could go on and on and on about why Minskin Boo is the perfect card for, for, for this deck, but... In, in terms of like a controlled finisher, it is basically a 2022 version of what Jace the Mind Sculptor used to be. If you are not playing at least three copies of this card in your uh, 60 card deck, uh, four in your 80 card deck, you are doing it wrong. I'm sorry, but you are just objectively doing it wrong because this card is fantastic. Uh, figure out your mana, figure out how to play and resolve the card. There are certain things you need to be cautious about, like make sure you don't lose the Lightning Bolt. Play around Lightning Bolt. If you don't know how, practice it and figure it out. There are ways to do it. Just like don't don't jam Minskin Boo like into open red mana unless you're absolutely desperately having to do it. Like those kind of things, right? Or wait until you find a Hydra Blast to protect it. Those kind of things, right? Like there are ways to like keep your Minskin Boo alive. You just need to not be greedy. Play it slowly. I think the best the best thing that like that caveat, like sorry, that that like light bulb went off when I was watching Harlan play uh against Delver in 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 SCG uh, con Baltimore and like he just played so glacially slowly he just like didn't want to advance his board state because he was so focused on denying his opponent his Delver opponent's from from like operating like literally would just play land number six and say all right i'm gonna hold up force of will here instead of playing uh like a card advantage spell or instead of doing something else and then he won and i was like this doesn't make any sense at all so th those kinds of things right but like yeah again like minskin boo like draws cards protects itself does everything that you need to do like ends the game literally gives control access to a lightning bolt effect which is insane you know how many times people go down to like three life off of an ad nauseum and then you're like they'll just like pass the turn and you're like well geez i wish i could do something about this minskin boo lets you do something about that right so like it just solves a lot of problems for the deck while also introducing a lot of problems for other decks in terms of like in terms of like how to handle 
that form of uh, that additional form of aggression or or, or threats or whatever it is I, I don't know right because like control is really good at reducing the board state down into a meaningful way that it can capitalize on but it just never really had a 2022 version of a card that could help it capitalize and now it does so you're all doomed nah i mean Uro obviously you know Honor is the first person to sing Uro's praises, but it's a little bit more vulnerable um, just because it has to go to the graveyard most of the time. Um, but Mincing Boo is just like, oh, you just need the four mana and have it survive a lightning bolt. So I think that condition is probably a little bit easier to satisfy. But I mean, the, the main thing is just that you have a finisher now, right? Like you have a, a card that wins you the game in one turn. Um, so like that's what I think is the biggest delta. Um, another interesting thing you you mentioned earlier was, you know, you're punting the dark ritual matchups. Um, I guess uh, follow up question to that. Would you say you're also punting, you know, something like Relay Storm as well? Or, or like, are you covered against, you know, OK, so you are kind of punting that as well. The Epic Gamble or whatever that that deck is also allowed to exist. I'm I'm pretty certain like like when when you look at like those style of decks like 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 ad nauseum or tendrils or like uh you know uh what is it called the the epic storm or the epic gamble like these style of decks they're they're not like it's not like i'm playing against the archetype i'm playing against players that have played this deck for a long time right like for the epic gamble it's probably just like tony scaponi for for ad nauseum tendrils it's like probably like demonic tutors and maybe a couple others for like the epic storm it's like bryant you know, Alex, like those people. You, you can literally count on like two hands the number of players you'd actually have to watch out for. And I'm not going to sabotage every single tournament just to beat these players. Um, I would I would also add that like Storm is kind of at the worst it's ever been possibly. Like it is the one archetype that has basically gotten no new cards recently, except for Echo Veons, whereas every other archetype has gotten major upgrades more or less. I guess Sneak and Show is the other deck that also has, you know, just fallen behind. But um, it's totally reasonable to, you know, pick which matchups to punt. And if you're going to choose, you know, a macro archetype, if you will, like Dark Ritual is a really good one to pick because uh, I'm looking at the kind of base metagame figures for it. And it's like under 5%, including all of these, you know, various Storm decks. And like the cool thing, too, is is like, OK, look, the Epic Storm, I'm just not going to beat with the current iteration of my deck because I well, I just I, I'm not going to warp my deck to beat it. So cool. Um, I mean, that deck is inherently like warp to beat blue decks by virtue of having like the main deck veil of summers and things like that and that's fine okay cool if i'm getting targeted like that i you you deserve to win then right uh but but then like the other dark ritual deck that i think is a larger much larger portion of the metagame is uh and maybe i'm wrong about this but like doomsday right like i think that one is much like it's much more popular and you'll see it a lot more closer to the end of swiss or in the top eight i think and and my deck as it is currently has a decent chunk of interactive cards for that matchup right like three dress down four endure mm -hmm. Re reanimator actually sees even more play but i think you're also in a sense i don't know like i think four endurance is nice against reanimator but like reanimator is one of those matchups where like there are some games you will never lose and there are some games you will never win and there are some things some there are some games there's doesn't matter what you do you will just you will like like the nut draws right like like the other day i was playing um and i and i'm i have uh it's game three and, you know, I mulligan to six and I hit force, blue card, endurance, green card, and a land. And I'm like, all right, it's never going to get better than this. Unmasked Thoughtseize, Dark Ritual combo, all on turn zero. Right? So it's like, fine. Like, why would you ever, ever stress about losing that kind of game? You don't. You, you're just like, all right, well, that happened. You just move on. Right? Same thing with, like, uh, like, the Storm decks in general. I just don't, I don't think the play patterns 
are worth like you know overcompensating for uh because then it just then i might lose a percentage point against death and taxes and that's something that i'll probably see that's that's like a much more winnable matchup with the extra card slot than storm would ever be you know what i mean so i don't know that that's just my general thought on it uh in in terms of like okay like i i i i i genuinely believe that people will pick up this deck they're going to lose a lot they're going to call it bad and then you know not play it again and i think that like in reality this deck is actually insane and people are just playing it wrong and i think like that's okay the thing is is like i have so much experience with this one deck that like I don't need to think about things that people are still like afraid of, right? Like, like for example, in the showcase challenge this week, uh, Nam, you know, made top eight with a deck that I think is particularly heinous. Like, I think it's actually like looking at it is is pretty bad. People will the number one gripe I see is people being like, "This isn't really a good Yorion deck," and I'm like, "Please, this is not supposed to be like you're you're not thinking about." Um, Yorion, you're, you're only thinking about Yorion in the conventional sense, like like a modern player would, where like you want to have blinkables in your deck to get value out of this card, but that's not what the deck is for, because in a lot of matchups, even getting one extra card is enough to push you over the edge, right? I was playing against Stefan, me against me on this deck, and him on 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 Delver, and I I, I smashed him. I, I won four matches, lost one. The one match that I lost, game one, I didn't hit one of my eight removal, one of my eleven removal spells. Uh, in time, and then game two, I I, I flooded out my brainstorm, or like I, I flooded out violently. Everything else, which was like average game case scenario, maybe maybe there was one match where he also experienced bad variants or whatever. Like it just it just wasn't close, right? And so like in those kind of matchups too, like this is where people would be like, oh well, yeah, I'm just gonna you're just gonna get wasted out, or you're just gonna lose the price of progress. Stefan after the match said, price of progress is not good against the way you play this matchup, right? So just like. What do I like? Okay, I'm gonna say it, but just like get good, you know what I mean? Like play the deck better, and then you too will stop losing in these scenarios where you think that your deck is going to normally lose. There is one use case where I think is like like really scary, which is like turn one blood moon on the play when I'm on the draw. That's something that's like all right, I guess, but like most decks will probably just struggle against that anyways. So like whatever. Well, you don't need to. I'll tell you, I had a similar experience. You don't need to defend your deck because I always play decks that like everyone's like. This deck's heinous. Like, um, so I'll give one example. Like last weekend, recently I've been on an anti-wasteland campaign just to clean up the streets of Legacy. So that uh, you know, and uh, a lot of some some people have been messaging me. They're like, "Oh, now that I cut wasteland, like, how do you beat this card? How do you beat like, and you know, any of these things?" And then I realized I'm like, uh, I'm like, well, if you like it, you can play it. I just you know, I play the list because I think that's a good list. You know what I mean? Like, you don't need to justify your list, you know, to <laughs> to everybody. You know what I mean? Well, I don't know if you're justifying it. It's more like they're curious how you're winning a specific matchup when you don't have Wasteland, which that's what I'm curious about too. Um, and, I'll, and I'll ask you about two matchups right now. Um, I guess one matchup is the, the Urza Saga matchup. So like Painter and, and Eight Cast, like I, I think those matchups get way worse if you don't have Wasteland in your deck. Well, I feel like I would rather hit my blue land drops and then cast spells that are good against Saga because so like I'll give an example. So like if you're playing against Eight Cast... And um, they play an Urza Saga. A lot of the times, like, Wastelanding the Saga is kind of uh, awkward because uh, two reasons. Like, number one, they're usually, like, putting a lot more permanence in play or making mana with, like, ancient... 
like I would say it's easier for Delver to be stuck with spells in hand than it is with Acast. Like Acast is pretty good at vomiting its whole hand into play. So like if you take the turn off to wasteland them, it's like delaying you from putting your hand into play. So delaying you from casting your Murktide, your Iteration, or your Ledger Shredder, or your Cantrips. And um, obviously it's like it's like nice like uh, in in a way to deal with Saga, but um, it doesn't play out super clean because you have trouble actually like casting all the spells in your hand. And I would, I would just go to cards, like, I was playing, like, three Meltdown for a while, or, like, now I have, like, two Explosives and two Repeals, um, so it can depend. Like, the reason I put the Explosives was because Mono Red was getting popular, and I thought it would be good against Mono Red, maybe. Not not sure. But, so, yeah, I, I see it, like, so, for example, for, like, uh, Dark Depths, and uh, Dark Depths, for example, like, people say, how do you beat Dark Depths? Like, I actually think that's another example. I think Waste, like, uh, Repeal is better, because if you play a Wasteland, I saw even Vuk, like, I never spoke to him about this, but he was saying, like, it's kind of awkward because then, like, the game goes on. I would say, like, the main issue with Wasteland is it's, like, hard as a Delver player to put all your ha- cards in play. I mean, I guess that might sound kind of weird, um, but but that is, that is an issue because there, there actually is a lot of clunky spells and other decks have, like, Mox Diamond and, like, a lot of cheap spells. Um, the other decks and, have fast mana and Delver yeah. doesn't. Like, your fast mana is, is Days. And, yeah, Days, days makes it so it's, like, your cards get stuck in your hand more. Um, and, and I would say, yeah, like when you play Wasteland, your opponent can kind of just keep playing the game or, or, or play around. Like if, if you have repeal for Dark Depths, like they're just going to get blown out so badly. Like they would ne- literally need to either have a knight in play to get this, like one of the guys to get a step or to crop rod for the step. It's like one mana. Also, like if they play a Mox Diamond, you get a Balancer Mox Diamond, you can buy back with Sanctuary. Um, but- are you saying, are you saying that Wasteland is too slow for Delver now? Well, so my theory was I noticed, I basically, because like, I play a decent amount of Delver, I just noticed, like, I'm, like, very, like, I would say I have a habit of being very greedy with my cards. Like, if a card's, like, not performing well, I get, like, very, I want, like, all the best cards. Like, that's a habit I have. So I might take it too far at times. Um, and I just noticed Wasteland was, like, not performing. Like, when I drew it, I was, like, never happy. Never was, like, it just felt bad all the time. Like, I could try and find a more eloquent way to say it. But So, so here's an observation I have. All of the monocolored decks now... Um, have been buffed by Kamigawa because they're all playing um, the um, Kamigawa land cycle, like Boseju, Otawara, Sokenzen, um, Eganjo. Like, like I think these other decks have like basically been able to play more mana sources and flood less due to these kind of basic lands. And so, I mean, I think historically in Legacy, it was like not that uncommon for you to just like wasteland people out of the game, but that just isn't happening anymore because I feel like people are probably playing more mana sources um, and still not flooding out like so maybe that's you know maybe a, a slight reason but i i really see what you're saying now it's like you're playing these cantrips to leverage these other spells like repeal meltdown price of progress like you're you're basically casting the good spells more rather than you know relying on wasteland to cheese which i agree like it doesn't happen as much anymore yeah i would say like i would say the control decks and the delver decks are very similar actually they're basically iteration and cantrips the only difference is delver i don't even play delver anymore it's just you play like murktide and days and the control decks play like expensive spells i would say like also regarding uh the wasteland thing like i would say it comes down to bad exchanges one way i've been thinking about magic like the last couple years is i always try and put myself in positions where i'm in doing good exchanges with my opponent and a lot of times when you wasteland your opponent, I felt like it was a bad exchange because they spent a mana. So I try and like avoid those spots. I would also say like I've played a lot of Delver over the last few years. And like the, one of the first things people say about wasteland is like, what about the cheese equity? And I feel like I was very, I was not commonly winning games from my cheese and my opponent. It was probably biased by the fact that I always sided out all of my wastelands. Um, I'm not, so yeah, I, I just kind of felt like it's kind of like an inefficient card. I'm like pretty, I saw Andrew had a, Andrew Ellenbogen was tweeting about ruthlessness. I'm like pretty ruthless in magic. Like I try and pay attention to how all the cards perform. And I felt like 
that's a card that underperforms. But I also do have weird biases. Like, I always play more cantrips than other people, uh, like, in every format. Like, even in standard last weekend, I added, like, four Siphon Insight, which is, like, a think twice to my standard deck that nobody was playing. And I just <laughs> love cantrips, so, like, I have preordains, but yeah. A, a quick question on cantrips and legacy. Like, how many do you like to play? Do you like to play ten or, like, even more? Like... That's a tricky... So, recently, I've been... So, when you, when you cut Wasteland, I added a couple preordains only because it helps me hit my blue land count and because murktide and dragon raid channeler and ledger shredder and even iteration to a degree all kind of care about it i'm not sure i'd say it's pretty hard like recently i've been playing like four four and like two preordains or two or three preordains but especially because like it helps you hit land drops and your spells are cheap i will say cantrips do have diminishing returns up after a certain point because sometimes you just flood on them like a hand with three cantrips is not good um most of the time I mean, obviously, some decks let you you know play it on the on the cantrips, but Legacy is also very fast, and you just get clogged up with them. So I think there is a point where, like, I don't think twelve is correct in most decks, but I think nine or ten could be reasonable. Yeah, I would say like Murktide helps with that a bit because, like you say, usually you get stuck on the back foot. And back in the day, your best threats were like True Name or Tarmogoyf, but now you're you're trying to set up Murktide Force, so you do have a bit more um, leverage. I also play four Mistress Bobble, which is kind of a cantrip in a way, so that's even more air. But yeah, so like the the basic point is like Murktide kind of gives you catch up and they actually like your threats have synergy so like back in the day tarmogoyf and and uh true name a lot of the threats didn't have that much synergy with cantrips some of them had a little bit like mongoose or pyromancer or whatever but now your threats really do care care about the cantrips and like iteration that's another thing i noticed like back in the day delver used to like fl- uh, like flood out or the curve would top but now with iteration you don't really like flood out like you can play like a really long game so it's just like uh the value of like hitting my uh the land drops goes a lot higher um, yeah, I forgot what I was going to say, but I was going <laughs> to say something else about Wasteland. Um, but oh yeah, I would say like when I cut it, I just was, so for a while I was like pretty unsure like how to build my like blue red decks in Legacy, but when I cut Wasteland, it just felt so much better, especially when I added Heat. So like Heat, a uh, small thing on Heat, like at first I didn't really, I didn't play it for a while and then I saw people were playing 4, so I figured uh, why not try 4? And I was surprised by by how good it felt. Like the ability to kill like big creatures, it didn't click into my head. But when I played it, I'm like, wow, I could kill anything. Like I played against like yeah, one of I played against Painter was Urza Saga, and they had like two five like they had like a six six and a five like two six sixes or whatever. And I just like untapped was like four mana and just like brainstormed like unholy heat one. It's just like it kills Shieldred, it kills like endurance. Like I noticed endurance is like used to be a card that was really annoying for me, and now it's like the cards like feels like pretty bad against me. Most of the time, obviously, you can still deal with Murktide. So I've, the deck has felt, like, so good to me. It's, like, the, the deck I've been playing, so I've been enjoying it. But obviously, everyone has their different lists that, that they like. Yeah, okay, I think what it comes down to is, like, you got to know exactly, you know, what you're doing and what your plan is for each certain matchup. And it sounds like you've basically figured out, like, what works for you. And I think, obviously, I think you're probably making some correct decisions but if someone just picked up your version of the deck if they don't make those exact decisions like they could lose a lot more than with like the stock delver list um so that's like something interesting and i I think yeah one major lesson and and i I do think we should (laughs) try to wrap up soon but this has been an awesome episode but i think one major lesson that both of you are saying and that i i totally agree with is just like don't go with what the like community necessarily thinks like the community just um is kind of like a is it's not a hive mind it's just it's a it's like a parrot like people just copy each other most of the time like sometimes some people make a really smart innovation like caleb adding like lightning bolts to painter and four fables or whatever and then everybody starts parroting him and then soon the edge is gone once you actually figure out like 
a real edge like you know you have with cutting wastelands and Anurag with how he's building his deck like you can just continue to kind of like capitalize on that even if it goes against the conventional wisdom like one uh, major thing i noticed with a cast is i crunched the numbers using the hypergeometric distribution and i basically figured out that like you do not play enough artifacts in the deck um which is kind of weird to say because it's like you know more than half artifacts but um there were a lot of times where you just didn't have mox opal available on like turn one and instead you were like filling your deck with like four thought monitor four thought cast four kappa kennedy or like just like these nonsense cards that you can just like not cast half the time so i took a hard look at the list and i just like tried to cut as much of the fat as i could to fit in more artifacts so like i think there are like things that you know people are just doing wrong that um the community doesn't necessarily realize and if you figure it out you can definitely have an edge yeah, I, I wouldn't say, I would say more so along the lines of uh, just so your, your average magic player is a healthy skeptic. And so that, that is the same sort of uh, mentality that will apply upwards when you go to a, like a larger community kind of deal. So I, I don't necessarily think it's like, that, that's that's the phrasing that I would use in particular. You need to really prove your results. And even then sometimes, you know, it, it just won't like, it won't carry across. Like, for example, the Riddlesmith deck, right? Like that deck did really well for a long time, but then... Uh, it was only until recently that more people started picking it up. So there's really a, like a, you have to present a resume uh, of success to really convince minds. And that's not a bad thing necessarily. That's just like, you know, but, but honestly, usually... like if, if your deck is broken and nobody else can play it, that's better than if people pick up on it, because if nobody's playing, you know, your version of four color control, maybe it doesn't make sense to metagame against it. And then you can just continue to have your super high win rate. Cause sometimes I remember like, sometimes I'm like, I build like, a deck and I'm like, oh, it's so good. Like, why does nobody play it? And then when people start playing it, I'm like, God damn, I hate these mirrors. Like, why did I do that? I was so dumb last month. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Well, I think we've we've talked a lot um, about about today and like the pit and things like that. I think okay, it, it, I, I guess this is one question we maybe have, like should have asked at the very beginning. But like, let's wrap up with this final thought, which is like, this weekend, if you were going to play the pit, Bob, what would you play? Uh, I'm probably gonna play a cast. Daniel? I would play, like, Blue-Red, No Wasteland, No Delver, like, Murktide, Iteration, Ledger, DRC, just, like, Blue-Red, Spam the Spell, Spam the Murktide, and if Anurag plows you, then we're gonna have to play that, like, Eldrazi protection spell that gives protection to creatures with, like, 7 power greater. <laughs> oh, man. And I'd probably play the 4-color deck that I've been playing. I think I'd make maybe one or two adjustments here or there, but same archetype, same thing like that. Everybody, thank you so much for listening to today's extra long one and a half hour episode of elo punters my name is otterag das i'm here with bob wong daniel goshel at elo punters on twitter if you have any questions thoughts questions or concerns or thoughts or questions and things like that if you have any feedback about what decks we're playing let us know tweet at us we'll answer all right that's about it for now we'll see you next time good luck at the pit bye